Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. China has become more fixated on the U.S. as its big rival. As uh, Xi Jinping keeps saying, uh, the West is declining, the East is rising, and by that he means the U.S. declining, China rising. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Metcalf, the head of the National Security College at the Australian National University, and we're recording today's podcast from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay respects to their elders. So the topic for this episode of the National Security Podcast is the forthcoming visit to China by the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and I'm joined by two very expert uh, observers uh, of the Australia-China relationship and the strategic landscape. It's a great privilege to welcome to the studio Richard Maud and Rowan Kallick. And for the benefit of listeners, uh, Richard, uh, for those who don't know him, is the Executive Director uh, Policy at the Asia Society Australia, but also has a distinguished career as a senior official and advisor in the Australian government, uh, including as Deputy Secretary in Foreign Affairs and Trade, and indeed the Director General of the Australian Office of National Assessments. And Rowan Kallick uh, holds a number of positions at the moment, including as an expert associate here at the National Security College, but also an industry fellow at uh, Griffith University's Asia Institute, uh, but is a uh, an eminent, if I can say that, about journalists, uh, a leading journalist uh, and commentator on regional affairs over many years, uh, looking not only at China, but also at the Pacific. So it's great to have you both with me today. Uh, Richard, if I can start with you... Your expectations for the Prime Minister's visit, let's learn a little bit first about the context leading up to this visit. Why is the visit so important? What does it mark in the uh, the rather rocky journey of Australia-China relations? Well, thanks, Rory. Uh, pleasure to be here with you and Rowan. It, it has been a roller coaster over quite some many years now. So the, the visit is significant for a number of reasons. First is it's quite a long time since an Australian Prime Minister last got to Beijing. Malcolm Turnbull, way back in 2016, it almost seems like another era now, was the last Australian Prime Minister to visit China. So it's been a long time between drinks and I think China remains exceptionally important partner for Australia and even against the background of a very difficult relationship, it's important for Australian Prime Ministers to be able to visit China from time to time and talk directly with their counterparts. So it's significant 
in that context. And I think it's significant for a second reason. One is it probably marks uh, to date the most significant indicator of the success of the government's desire to stabilise relations with China. So the Prime Minister is going with some work still to be done. There are definitely things that he and his government still want to achieve in the relationship, but quite a lot has been achieved in terms of getting political-level dialogue going, getting officials-level dialogue going, quite a, a lot of unwinding by China of the trade coercion that it employed against Australia and, of course, uh, with the wonderful news of the release of uh, Cheng Lei. And Rowan, uh, not, not looking for furious disagreement here, but it would be interesting if you've got uh, your own take on uh, why this visit matters. Does it matter as much as the government uh, says it does? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, it comes at the end of this period, as, as Richard's been outlining, of um, stabilisation of the relationship from both sides. It, it almost comes at a time when people are bound to ask, what now? And uh, interesting to read, for example, David Olson, the uh, uh, chairman, is it president of the Australia-China Business Council, saying, you know, we must move beyond stability. What can that be? What, uh, what kind of vision is possible? It's difficult because China itself is in a somewhat volatile state. Uh, strangely, uh, we've seen the loss of, unexplained loss of uh, the Foreign Minister um, Qin Gang and the uh, Defence Minister Li Shangfu and so on. So you build up relationships, the people disappear. <laughs> it, it, it's not that easy to um, uh, to uh, get a grip on uh, a relationship with a volatile, uh, uh, volatile polity in which the party is gaining ever more uh, ground in decision making from the government. There, there's lots of changes which. Obviously, China's entitled to do, but it, it's a challenge for all interlocutors. And uh, uh, But we're on firmer ground now in terms that we are talking. It's uh, It's got that context of the 50th anniversary of Gough Whitlam's first visit as, as Prime Minister. And the establishment of, of the bilateral relationship, effectively. That's right. It had happened uh, a year before, the December before, We've gone through that 50th anniversary, but uh, this is the first time that uh, the Prime Minister have visited, and that's the anniversary coming up. And uh, so clearly it's, it's emblematic in, uh, in the history of uh, Australia, China, and of um, the Prime Minister's own party, the, the Labour Party, very important event. But important, I think, not to look back too much because that's not so helpful situation is extremely different from what it was then and extremely different from when Malcolm Turnbull, the previous Prime Minister who visited, he went to Shanghai, then Beijing. I was there, uh, the visit. That was a, almost a routine time, type of uh, uh, encounter. Doesn't have this big weight of expectation that we have this time. But fortunately, 
uh, as Richard explained, some of the steam and the pressure has come out of it because uh, we've returned to talking. Uh, some of those uh, coercions, uh, uh, commercial and personal, have been removed. So what next? I, I'm not really sure about what next. Let's come to expectations in a minute. And I want to go to expectations in terms of substance, but also expectations in terms of the style of the visit, what, what to watch for. But we'll come to that in a second. I just want to pick up on one point you made there, Rowan, which, which was just a reminder that it's not as if China has stood still during this time when Australia went through a period of great friction in the relationship with China. Uh, there could be an argument that China has its own reasons for wanting uh, renewed dialogue with Australia, in addition to the fact that we have a government that has taken a very, very disciplined approach to the relationship and has sought to minimise uh, any sense of, of provocation. What do you think, Rowan? Do you think China needs Australia now more than they did a few years ago, or is that is that simplistic? I I, I agree. I think it's uh, looking for people it can talk to in a in an adult way. Uh, uh, it's got these big problems with the United States. Uh, we've seen uh, a series of measures taken by the US in terms of seeking to isolate China's tech sector, which in some ways has been its most successful international sector internationally, albeit uh, constrained by political decision-making inside China, which has disrupted that process. Um, China has become more fixated on the US as its big rival, as it, uh, as uh, Xi Jinping keeps saying, uh, the, the West is declining, the East is rising, and by that he means, in his mind, the US declining, China rising and uh, frustration that this isn't happening uh, as fast or as much in a globally recognised manner as he might have hoped. And uh, Australia being uh, perceived as a Western country uh, is one that, again, China feels it can talk to. It has this important economic relationship uh, of codependency and, uh, and that ties us together. There's hopes always in China that we might be persuaded to move a little away from the US. And uh, I'm pretty sure that the Prime Minister won't be walking down that path. We're moving to expectations. Richard, um, before you maybe talk about what you expect from the visit, uh, what's your view on that on that point of context? I mean, is, is China extremely confident in the way it's engaging with Australia or is there some quiet, uh, if you like, sense of need on their part that, that China actually needs Australia to be a, uh, a more cooperative interlocutor? I think it would be a bold call to say that China needs Australia to be a more cooperative partner. I think Rowan's absolutely right that they would like us to be a more yeah. cooperative partner. And they say they don't really understand why we're not uh, Chinese system is fond of saying that there's no reason why China and Australia shouldn't be able to get on. We're not great power adversaries. We don't share a disputed border. We don't have a relationship 
freighted with historical trauma. And of course, part of that narrative is a refusal uh, or disinclination to engage on genuine Australian concerns about China's conduct towards us. They tend to think that if only we just um, stopped being hysterical, quote unquote, and following the in the footsteps of the United States, we could all perfectly get get on. And there therein lies one of the kind of central dilemmas of the relationship, because for all the stabilisation, the two sides do talk past each other, and that puts inevitable limits. So I think one one opening point about expectations is stabilisations come quite a long way. As I said, there's still room to do some more. Uh, we can get to specific outcomes that might come, but there's still an opportunity, I think, to, to uh, keep incrementally developing a fuller, more rounded, uh, less hostile relationship within the boundaries of, of stabilisation. But I think you know, the government itself is understands uh, the limits, the inherent limits to the relationship, uh, the boundaries to the relationship, which are posed not not um, by any sense that Australia uh, wants to prevent China's rise or to participate in a UN US-led effort to contain and suppress it. To paraphrase Xi Jinping, uh, you know Australia wants a good relationship with uh, China, but the the boundaries, the constraints, are really driven by China's conduct and the nature of the party state that has now emerged. So be direct on this. What are your expectations or what do you think should be realistic expectations from the Australian government for the outcomes of the visit? Well, clearly the government would like a couple more shoes to drop on the trade front. So wine is obviously the big one. The trade minister said the other day that Australia had gone from having roughly $20 billion worth of trade under one form of action or another down to about $2 billion worth of trade. So that's already a big drop. Um, but there are a couple of problems still remaining. Wine is one, lobster is one, a little bit a little bit on the meat front. Wine's a big one. The wine growers, some of the wine growers have been hurting. The trade minister has said recently that he hopes to speak to his Chinese counterpart in the next couple of weeks. So that may be a soft signal that perhaps... Uh, around the visit, uh, you know, either during or slightly before or slightly after, we will get an outcome on wine. There is media reporting that the uh, WTO panel has handed their draft report to both sides. And if it is as favourable to Australia as the government had hoped, then the the opportunity is to follow the barley model and to give China a, a bit of space, face-saving space to, to drop those measures. So trade is one. There are still some uh, elements of what you might call the normal back and forth, if you can call anything normal these days, of the bilateral relationship yet to be established. We we had a thing called the CEO roundtable. We haven't had one of those for a while. Uh, we, we haven't had very senior business delegations get into China more regularly. We haven't gone back to talking about uh, climate and clean energy so some of that functional cooperation where there might be space to do things with China that benefit both parties would be good. 
you alluded to this earlier, Rory, but there's still an Australian detained in very unjust circumstances, Young Hing Jun. So I'm sure the Prime Minister will advocate on his part privately as he should, but directly uh, to the uh, to the President. There's a series of quite difficult issues that uh, the Prime Minister will have to mention. I'm sure he will, although getting a real discussion on them is hard, but we have as you know, many concerns about um, China's uh, pressure on Taiwan at the moment, about its uh, very assertive actions in the South China Sea, its partnership with uh, Russia uh, on the Ukraine war, uh, human rights, of course. So, you know, I think if the PM can come away with some positive news on trade or at least foreshadowing it, if there is a little bit more uh, on the sinews of the relationship, you know, repairing them, then in my mind that's a good outcome because getting there in itself isn't an achievement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to my mind, Australia, the Prime Minister and the government, they don't need a lot more than that. On the strategic context, I think uh – You've mentioned already the the risk taking behaviour or the uh, you know the, the deliberate uh, threat uh, behaviour or, or seemingly threatening behaviour of China towards Taiwan and in other contexts the South China Sea and so forth. Do you think that Australian dialogue with China on those issues, you know, so called confidence building measures or guardrails or, or ways to minimise risks of um, conflict escalation? Do you think that will be a substantial part of the visit or just really the beginning of a conversation? The, the Prime Minister has talked often, as has Penny Wong, about um, both the United States and China as great powers having special responsibilities, in particular to avoid stumbling into war that would be disastrous for us all. Um, both the Minister and uh, the Prime Minister have talked about the need for risk reduction measures I think risk reduction seems to be the term that's now replaced. Guardrails guard have quietly slipped away. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in the region and, you know, no doubt the Prime Minister will encourage that, including encouraging China to get back into regular defence dialogues, a dialogue with the United States. It's an, it's an extremely difficult argument to prosecute because uh, China is not really interested in Cold War style risk reduction measures uh, doesn't really even like hotlines, um, you know, let alone incident at sea agreements or in the air, uh, because as the Chinese Defence uh, Minister uh, now departed <laughs> uh, said at the Shangri La dialogue, the problem will go away if America and America's allies and partners just stay away from China, yeah, China's stay stay out of the Taiwan Strait, stay out of the South China Sea. So the problem, as they see it, is that. Uh, confidence-building measures will legitimise, maybe even encourage US behaviour that they, that they China, regards as provocative. So that's the problem and no one's yet quite found a way uh, to cut through that. Yeah, and, and accordingly China seems to be using risk as actually one of its, um, one of its strategies. Uh, Rowan, your expectations in substance, but also then I would love to hear from you on what you expect in terms of the the style, the look and the feel of the visit and what that symbolically could mean? Yes, good question, Rory. I think it's uh, very important to establish that at the start um, to quash any sense of this being 
a tributary style relationship. Xi Jinping has curtailed his international travel and is in, instead more waiting for, for foreign leaders to come to him. And uh, one has seen in the past uh, leaders walk the red carpet inside the Great Hall of the People, uh, come to Xi and not being sure what to do, very often they bow. She never bows back. He rarely even looks at them. And, uh, you know, he, he wears this, he has this expression that Richard has written about of weary forbearance. <laughs> uh, so I don't think uh, our prime minister should take this personally. This is just a, a general thing. But I think uh, he needs to look him in the eye, shake his hand, uh, and uh, this is a meeting of equals in some ways and, and not one of uh, a, an emperor talking to someone from a distant land. I think it's quite important to establish uh, that and, and uh, I'm, I'm confident our Prime Minister is well aware and will we'll, we'll prosecute that well. I think that um, it's important that he is fairly bold in talking out in ways that Richard has talked about, in ways that will help act as a deterrence to uh, any inclination on Xi's part to push further into militarization of the South China Sea, causing even further uh, alarms with the Philippines, our new strategic alliance partner, and with uh, and across the Taiwan Strait, of course. These meetings are particularly important because the decision-making body in at the peak of the party is a black box. We really don't know much about who's around Xi as decisions are made, the process of this. Uh, he's the chair of leading and uh, eight, I think, leading small groups that form policy. We really don't know how these processes work in any clarity. So when we have the chance, not only us, but uh, our international partners, it's important to speak clearly to those top people. And you, she is the top in China. He's the paramount leader, the most powerful since Mao Zedong, and explain uh, why we hold our views and hold our concerns uh, about uh, the risks that we're entering into our region. I, I think that's very important. China's a, is called by an academic friend of mine, Zhu Feng, as a lonely rising power. So it, it hasn't got many people, uh, many national leaders who are going to tell him the home truths. Uh, Vladimir Putin is currently in, uh, as, as we're holding this uh, conversation, in Beijing. I don't yeah, think... It doesn't look so lonely if you look at the uh, BRI uh, summit. No, but I don't think we're going to hear many home truths from those uh, those people. They're mainly petitioners looking for a continuation of uh, loans, but, and they're going to be disappointed in many cases. Just still on the... Uh, the the substance. No, I'm sorry. Still on the style, I should say. Still on the um, the symbolic element of the visit. Is there anything else, Rowan, from your experience of being a China watcher and living in China, of uh, of seeing how the system operates? Is there anything else that the Australian government should be watching for, careful about, 
things to avoid, things to recommend against? I think one of the things to recommend is touch onto the, the the personal when you can with the lead like Xi Jinping. He's visited every Australian state. Uh, his last visit, he, he went to Tasmania and completed the uh, – a lot of Australians have not visited every Australian state. And um, I think um, uh, having some uh, personal notes about Xi's visits here and so on, uh, I think – Trying to build up some kind of uh, accord is is a good thing to do. I think in uh, in terms of what we can ask for, I think we should we should ask to go back to the principles from which we f- we formed our free trade agreement. With all this commercial coercion, not too many people have gone back to that. Uh, And I think it's important to say, let's go back there, uh, both sides, and let's recommit to that and to the uh, principles. It was a reasonably comprehensive agreement, and uh, uh, but politically charged decision-making by Beijing has... uh, fractured that and fractured confidence in it. And uh, I think we should restore in full those annual dialogues. And again, Richard mentioned some. There's a whole suite of them at a political level as well that we we would like uh, China to recommit to, partly for those reasons that it's important to have plain speaking at the top levels when we can, not only on our behalf, but on the behalf of our uh, partners and friends who may feel under pressure from uh, China today. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Richard, you've been a Prime Ministerial Advisor. Uh, what are your do's and don'ts for the visit? Well, I was smiling as uh, Rowan was talking because I I did accompany Julia Gillard to Beijing when she visited and uh, and there's a photo of me shaking hands with uh, Xi Jinping as I was introduced in the lineup. And my body is at an angle, <laughs> so he, he was standing so far away that he almost forced, you know, that kind of signal of deference that Rome was talking about. Yeah, look, I think uh, offering advice to prime ministers is is always hazardous, uh, and he he's got plenty of really good China expertise around him, including Jan, Jan Adams and um, 
excellent ambassador as well. Uh, so he probably probably doesn't need um, my advice. But a, cu- a couple of thoughts. Um, one is, you know, China does look for opportunities with visits like this to try and portray the visit uh, as somehow uh, the country in question splitting away from America. So, you know, it, it likes to uh, try and paint a picture of division within what you might call the Western alliance when it comes to dealing with China. So try and uh, try and make, make it look like France and Germany, for example, are uh, departing from the new somewhat tougher line that Brussels is setting on Europe or or New Zealand is different to everyone. So that's a pretty obvious trap and one mm-hmm. um, one that I'm sure the PM will be avi- advised to avoid. It, ju- it just requires a bit of care and uh, not to be verbal t- uh, if if you can. I think you know. I think the the other one is that um, you know it'd be interesting to to know how long the meeting with Xi Jinping is because often they use uh, consecutive translation. Uh, if they do use consecutive translation, however long your meeting is, it's it's instantly halved. Mm. So sometimes you you have less time than you think. Uh, not just to get across your main points, but to try and actually get into that conversation that might connect that Rowan talked about. Talk, talking to Chinese senior officials and ministers and even leaders is often very hard. You know, often they have their talking points, they won't depart from them, they won't engage with the idea that China bears any responsibility for the collapse in relations, not just between China and Australia, but the dramatic collapse in trust uh, that we're seeing across the West and indeed in countries like India. So, you know, it can be hard, uh, but if there's enough time and you have your, you know, your plan of attack um, for the main bilateral meeting set out, then hopefully um, the PM can connect. Uh, can I just uh, butt in here? Just uh, two more don'ts and two more do's. One is... I I think it's important that we try to return to a form of bipartisanship uh, on China policy and ideally in many other areas of foreign policy. And um, the Beijing narrative has been developed that, uh, and I've had this confirmed by meetings with people uh, who've come from China. We've had quite a a suite of uh, visitors from Chinese think tanks and other place, uh, places in the last year, the narrative has developed that Australians voted a Labour government in in order to vote also for China. And uh, I think that because the coalition is anti-China, and I think it's uh, a perilous thing for that view to be be perceived to gain any kind of acknowledgement by our own government. I think just a straight bat, as it were, to that kind of thing is very important. And generally, uh, it would be good for us to see uh, more of a return to bipartisanship at home, which needs to be cobbled together. And um, another no, I think, is a no return to the formal human rights dialogue that we had before, which was a kind of uh, a containment of our 
capacity to raise human rights issues. They were then confined to uh, an afternoon's uh, conversation, uh, which rarely or maybe never really led anywhere. I think that's an unnecessary constraint. But positive things, this is a very uh, weird one, but I do think that there is room for us to do things together with the Pacific Islands. And um, Sorry, do you mean Australia and China to collaborate in the Pacific? Yes, in, in development areas. And uh, I think that China's uh, development uh, policies there have not been as effective or as helpful as, uh, as they could be, and they may well be perceived to be aimed at uh, achieving contrary aims to our own. But I think insofar as there is uh, a desire to actually help Pacific people to uh, grow their own economies and uh, live better lives, it will be an interesting thing to see if there's any, uh, it would have to be acknowledged from the top, any capacity for us to uh, uh, work together. That might also undermine some of that uh, uh, suspiciousness and increasing rivalry that we're seeing, which is not not helping anyone. It's not helping us, not helping China, not helping Pacific Islands. It's just making development biddable. And I think the other thing I'd like to see is more uh, commitment to um, uh, joint research in areas like uh, uh, medical research, including infectious disease, ailments of the elderly. There's things where we work together with uh, our institutions, with Chinese institutions, to have some kind of blessing from uh, Xi. Uh, we could do we could do more for the benefit of both. And presumably, doing all of that with our our national security eyes open. It, it's interesting, uh, Rowan, that you suggest that collaboration in the Pacific, because although the current Australian government has been more disciplined in its rhetoric towards China broadly in the relationship, it's also worked very hard, I would say, to limit China's influence in the Pacific. So I don't think there's um, there's a great deal of trust there. Yes, that's true, of course. There's a global context, and you've both alluded to it, and I think, Richard, you mentioned earlier that uh, it, it's not as if the uh, the frictions and the, and the and the distrust in the China Australia relationship is somehow unique. You know, you mentioned India, you mentioned the United States, but we could also talk about Japan, the Philippines, Vietnam, Europe. It's a long it's a long list. Uh, other countries will be watching this visit closely, and of course, the Prime Minister will be visiting China uh, during a a season of international travel who'll also be going twice to the United States, who'll also be going to the Pacific Islands Forum, and one of his trips to the US will be to APEC. So many eyes will be on Australia, partly with that question of what what, what are we doing? Are we stabilising? Are we going further than a stabilisation? Are we being broken away from some sort of solidarity or are we effectively uh, reinforcing to China the terms of the relationship? What are your views on those other observers and what they might take away, whether it's the United States or others? Yes, you're, you're right, Roy. The visit will be closely watched. You know, I think I would probably say to those people 
outside of Australia from other countries watching the visit is that Australia is simply returning uh, to the type of relationship with China that most of those other countries enjoy. So, you know, the United States uh, visits China regularly, not at the presidential level to be sure, but certainly very senior ministers have been through Beijing uh, routinely recently that Europe sends its most senior leaders. Uh, Japan has high-level dialogue and an enormous economic relationship with China. So we are just simply trying to claw back some ground after some very difficult years. I don't think it indicates in any sense a loss of realism about uh, what China is or the risks that are either real and apparent now or potential that China poses to us. And I think one interesting thing about the juxtaposition, the closeness of uh, the Prime Minister's visits, state visit to Washington and then uh, not long after uh, a visit to Beijing is that in a way you will see two sides of foreign policy that, you know, they, they do have a certain tension to them, uh, which the Chinese media likes to point out to Australia. You know, you're back to having your cake and eat it too. But the government's been intent on stabilisation. It's tried to take some of the heat out of the rhetoric on China domestically. It's tried to, to the extent one can, uh, take a little bit of the politics out of the relationship with China. But it's also continued, as you know, Rory, most of, if not nearly all of, the policy framework for managing China risks, whether they're domestic or foreign, that it inherited from the coalition. And I, I can't speak for the government on this, but one presumes that they've done so because they see it as a necessary adjustment to um, the way in which uh, China has changed, a phrase that the foreign minister herself used. And in some cases, the government's doubled down on some of those elements. So if you look at the way in, if you look at the Defence Strategic Review, uh, the government's emphasis on deterrence in their response to that document, the support for the nuclear-powered submarines, the strong support for force posture initiatives with the United States, the investment in the Quad, and so on it goes. So, you know, you can look at all those policies and see a government that still very much sees the need to manage and hedge against risks from China, uh, and they're matching it with an, um, diplomacy. So that the Prime Minister talks about diplomacy and deterrence as being uh, the twin parts of the government's approach. So before we wrap up, I want to uh, ask you to begin thinking about how this visit may be seen a year from now or a few years from now, where it will sit in the uh, the long journey of Australia-China relations and the, and the dynamics of uh, really stability in, in, in the Indo-Pacific region. There is, as we said at the outset, uh, a pretty uh, powerful regional and global context, a pretty disturbing context. We're recording this interview at a time where uh, there's uh, now conflict uh, unfolding in the Middle East following the uh, horrific attack on Israel by Hamas and now the uh, the response by uh, Israel into Gaza, which, which, which could itself drive further um, escalation and is already uh, driving further bloodshed. The, the war in Ukraine is continuing uh, after Russia's invasion last year. The risks of conflict 
here in the Indo-Pacific, the risks of confrontation, many of those risks um, based around the decisions that the Chinese leadership will make. So even in a best-case scenario, the Australia-China relationship a year or two or three from now is going to be in this pretty fragile global environment. Therefore, I guess as a parting question, I'd ask each of you, and I'll go to you first, Rowan, um, how do you see this in that long arc? I think it's going to be a matter of setting aside a period of instability and the the big question is where to now will the prime minister be uh, outlining uh, a new step for the relationship or uh, will he Keep that in reserve. I think that's uh, a quite legitimate thing for us to do at this time, to uh, re-establish the relationship as was, bearing in mind we've got nothing to be grateful about for China restoring trade, for example, that it has it, it, uh, wrongly um, barred us from. So I don't think any gratitude is called for, uh, but Putting things uh, back in place uh, is the first thing that he can do and will be doing. I'm not sure that this is the time for suggesting a, a new path. I think uh, that may have to wait and have to wait discussion with our friends. And we, we're talking ever more closely, as you just alluded to, with uh, partners in uh, quad in AUKUS and so on and I think that that will have to emerge and best done in partnership you know and, and even in terms of the biggest threat the danger across the Taiwan Strait important for us not to get caught up in uh, reaffirming the one China policy obviously Australia has its own policy, which is not the same as China's, not much value in uh, the Prime Minister and President Xi, you know, arguing the toss about that, that will really get nowhere. But I think in terms of the communique that comes out of this, important that we don't put ourselves there because we want to leave ourselves space to do what we can to preserve the status quo across the Taiwan Strait, that this uh, uh, terrific um, democracy that's uh, in power there uh, can continue to thrive. And so I'm, I'm going back to the beginning of our conversation, limited expectations, but uh, nicely putting to bed uh, a, a bad period for both countries, and uh, let's let's get on with dealing with each other as adults in the future. But in terms of a big China vision, let's wait until we've talked to our friends after the visit. Richard, any closing thought from you on on how we'll look back on this? Well, I think the visit comes at a time when, despite that collapse of trust that I mentioned across the the West the rising concern about China's conduct internationally, the risks that are building in the international system, that the West, including the United States, has not completely given up on China and believes that disconnecting to a significant degree is 
undesirable, potentially carries its own risks and probably not possible. And I think we should see the visit by the Prime Minister, in, you know, at a very big level in that context. We're now in a world where competition between US and China and to some extent between China and the rest of us is hardwired into the system. We've got a China that in many respects is going in the wrong direction faster. But we are hanging in there, talking to them and trying to, where we can, influence China. The Prime Minister has said on a number of occasions that his government puts dialogue with China at the heart of efforts to stabilise the relations. And China has had its own reasons and motivations for warming the relationship. But I think you could say that that dialogue has produced outcomes that benefit Australian national interests. But what we haven't been able to do, nor America, nor Europe yet, is to really cut through that Chinese mindset about the world, that the world is particularly, or the West is inimically hostile to China's rise, will never accept China as a peer competitor, and that China is blameless in his conduct. So what what we really need to do while we're hedging against those risks, is to keep trying to cut through that barrier. And I, wonder, I wonder how much chance we've ever got of doing that, though, Richard, given that that for all the, the decades of engagement leading up to you know the rupture of a few years ago, uh, throughout that period, the evidence is that, that, that the Chinese system still felt uh, that, that there was never going to be trust. I think the chances are, are very low, certainly at... Um, the strategic level, if you like, in terms of China's outlook for at least as long as it's far ahead as it's sensible to look. But I do think we can probably have influence collectively at the tactical level uh, and we should try for that and especially over Taiwan, for example. And I don't think we have much choice to keep trying. That's point A. Point B we're not sitting on our hands while we're trying, right? We, we are definitely, we are into deterrence big time. We are into managing risk big, big time. We are into protecting national interests. So that's the other part of the equation. That's a good note to conclude on because, of course, if you go back to the, um, I think, the, the, the very elegant um, three-point articulation of government policy on China about um, cooperating where we can, uh, differing where we must and always working in Australia's national interests, it sounds like that's um, that's informed this conversation today. So thank you. Can I just interrupt yes. you, Rory, yeah, just sure. to say one thing? Keep one, it going. I, I think <laughs> it, the Prime Minister might, with some... Uh, find some value in getting on the phone to a former Labor Prime Minister to talk about uh, his upcoming visit. You're not going to name any names? Oh, I, I, I leave it to the listeners, the peg podcast, to uh, imagine who that might be. But I think that that will be uh, – he, he, he will, of course, be doing that. But uh, I'm just saying I think that person has some pretty uh, – well, uh, you know, pretty well-researched thoughts on this subject. Thank you. Uh, well-researched. There's a clue. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, uh, Rowan Callick and Richard Maud. Thanks, Rory. Thank you, Rory. Terrific. <laughs>